I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 122 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times news and politics podcast. This week, I'm here with co-host for this week, Simone Alisea from KNKX. Hey, glad to be here. And we're talking to Seattle City Council member Andrew Lewis. He's a new council member, uh, just elected this past November. And we're going to talk about big business taxes, winter evictions, public safety, a lot of things. Thanks for joining us, Council Member Lewis. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, longtime listener of the Overcast, so very excited to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for thanks for being on. So uh, maybe I'll start it off and then Simone can pick it up after that. You just voted this past Monday uh, with the rest of the council as a 7-0 vote to pass a moratorium on most residential evictions during the winter. And, and that got quite a bit of attention. Why did you vote for that and how do you imagine that working? Right. Well, uh, yeah, you know, Monday was a really busy day this week. Uh, and one of the things we did vote on was the winter eviction um, ordinance. I think it's really important to, uh, first off, just lay out how it's structured for folks that are listening, because it is a little bit unique. So it's not a hard and fast uh, moratorium during the winter. It's structured as a defense and eviction proceeding. So uh, someone facing eviction would have to go into court. They would have to raise it as a defense. um, And that is how it would be applied. Uh, So that's the first thing that that I want to put out there. It's kind of a a unique way uh, in how it's put together. Uh, you know, as chair of the Select Committee on Homelessness and Strategies, uh, you know, I was really guided throughout the conversation around the winter eviction ordinance um, on the connection between evictions and homelessness, uh, evictions regardless of when they happen during the year. And, you know, we saw um, a great report, um, I think in the fall of 2018, from the Women's Commission and the King County Bar Association, which laid out very clearly that one of the leading causes of homelessness um, is uh, people being evicted, uh, you know, economically evicted for failure to pay rent, not having a place lined up to stay, ending up on the street. So as someone who cares a lot about our high um, entry into homelessness in the region, um, reforms around tenant protections uh, is, is one of the strategies we can use to stop um, the, the massive demand for shelter services and, um, and other public health services that make our response to homelessness way more expensive. So with that in mind, uh, I was completely open to really engaging with this policy. We passed several amendments, and I think this is important for the folks listening um, to the overcast. You know, that we had a lot of compelling testimony that um, it would have very strong adverse impacts for small landlords that have trouble coping with some of these regulations. So we exempted landlords with four units or less. It does not apply to landlords with four units or less. And just to clarify, but, there was some confusion about that on Monday. Right. It's, it's landlords with, with four units or less anywhere in any building in Seattle. It's not, as, as you understand it, it's not buildings with four units or less, correct? Right. So if you're an individual landlord and let's say, well, let's say for the sake of argument, you, you had like two separate buildings with two units, right? It would, you'd still be exempted under the ordinance. Um, so it doesn't, it's not just, uh, but, but if you had three separate buildings of two units and so six total, you would not be exempted. You're not a small landlord anymore. That, that's probably the best way to explain it. Well, and you also sponsored an amendment. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and what that does. Right. So, uh, you know, one of my concerns, too, uh, was making sure that we were not in a position that this regulation would adversely um, uh, put any landlord in a situation where they were going to have to take a haircut on the rent um, because of the moratorium. So I sponsored a 
amendment to add a mitigation fund. One thing um, that really led me to do this is learning a lot about successful diversion programs that Mary's Place has, where they do a lot of once-in-time rent support to keep people in their home so that they don't enter um, the, the system and be in a position where nonprofits and the government have to spend um, exuberant amounts of money um, to, to then give social services to them in the shelter system. Instead, uh, like there's a lot of research coming out on this and it's being proven by practices, one-time diversionary payments are a really effective way to stop people from entering into homelessness. So I wanted to make sure we had uh, another diversion program put in place, um, this mitigation fund. We uh, estimated it initially, this was before any amendments um, were hung onto the ordinance, so we need to look at it again and see how that's impacted the cost. Uh, The projected cost would be about half a million dollars. Uh, That cost is almost certainly going to go down because of some of the exemptions um, and changes and means testing and other things, other amendments that we did pass. So, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to updating folks as we go forward, going into the budget cycle on how much that will ultimately cost. But, uh, you know, every dollar we spend on diversion is, um, you know, several more dollars that we don't have to spend on, on shelter, triage, or treatment. And before we move on to another topic, just really quickly, some of the critics of, of the winter eviction moratorium ordinance, uh, you know, uh, landlords uh, warned about uh, adverse, you know, unintended consequences. Uh, uh, and actually the mayor, I don't think, has yet signed this ordinance. She was critical of it, uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin. And one thing that she warned about was uh, that a lawsuit was likely forthcoming from from uh, landlord groups and uh, that the city might be on unstable legal ground. What do you think about that? Well, a lot of the amendments we passed, I think, really strengthened this uh, um, for a potential legal challenge. I think it was definitely the case uh, going into Monday with the ordinance that we did have before we passed amendments that we were going to face, uh, you know, what's called a um, like a takings challenge under the Fifth Amendment, you know, regulating property to to the point where you can argue you're devalue, devaluing the property and, and you're entitled to some kind of compensation for that. You know, I think the amendments that we previously discussed around the exemption of small landlords and the mitigation fund help because it it make the it makes the um, regulation as a whole, um, you know, in a position where you know the the scope is not as broad and we're we are compensating through the mitigation fund the landlord that kind of undermines a potential argument. I think also the ones we haven't talked about yet narrowing the period from five months to three months is another amendment we passed um, that draws our, you know, I don't want to get too lawyer-y on this, but it, but it draws our um, our interest as a city government in preventing homelessness in the coldest months of the year um, even more compelling for a judge because they could say, okay, well, uh, you know, there's there's no ambiguity that December through February is winter, so that could that can help uh, with a legal challenge as well. And the means testing, like we can argue, you know, we're really focusing on folks that are at risk of falling into homelessness because of where they are economically. That's another thing that helps um, uh, will help in the the legal case. So all those amendments combined, I think, make the ordinance much stronger. Um, to withstand a legal challenge. So let's take a step back. You've only been at City Hall for just a, a month and a half. Um, going back to the the election in November, what was it like to run last year against Jim Pugil with, uh, you know, understanding that you had Amazon and Unite Here dropping a lot of cash into this race? What was that like? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I want to say is, um, you know, I have a profound amount of respect for Jim Pugil. You know, I wish that Jim Pugil and I could both be on the Seattle City Council together. 
Um, I Former had, interim police chief, longtime uh, Seattle Police Department um, figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually the real thing that stood out to me is despite what these other groups did, be it Amazon, be it Unite Here, you know, Jim and I kept the whole thing clean. And I have a lot of appreciation for that because that did not happen in all of the other council races. Um, and, you know, he, he has a long and distinguished career um, of service in the city of Seattle where he did a lot of good. And I'm very grateful to him for that and, um, you know, hope that uh, he continues to stay involved. Um, in terms of uh, running as a uh, as a candidate last year, you know, as someone who's lived in Seattle my whole life, been involved in campaigns um, for my whole life, I was kind of struck by uh, how polarizing a lot of the rhetoric started to get. You know, one of my focuses on the council is going to be on bringing people together, building broad coalitions, trying to foster a policy space where we don't um, have a repeat of really divisive, expensive cycles, because I think it it's not good for the civic fabric of the city. It's not good for our politics. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I would hope that uh, when I run again in four years, uh, we have a, um, uh, a climate that's going to be more about coming together than, than pulling apart. And how has this month and a half been mostly what you've expected? Surprises is the, you know, a uh, lot of lot of things to get up to speed on. How's how's that how's that been? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been um, I've been having a great time on the city council so far. Uh, it's a great job. Um, I love uh, working um, with my colleagues and representing my neighbors. You know, one of the things I, that's been really, um, you know, I mean, I think the best part of the job so far has been the office hours that we've been doing in the district. And one of the things I committed to when I was running last year was. Uh, that if I won this, I was going to make myself very, very available to the people of District 7 um, to listen directly to their concerns, um, really emphasize constituent casework, and really roll up my sleeves. Um, We've so far had three in-district sessions. We just started doing them this month um, in February. Um, We did one drop-in session in Belltown just around the corner here at the Top Pot Donuts. Um, We did a session um, uh, uh, um, yesterday at um, uh, El Diablo up on Queen Anne, um, did a session on uh, Uptown, uh, you know, my, my home neighborhood of Uptown. Um, and that has been a really, uh, um, a really rewarding experience so far. I look forward to continuing to do that. And I encourage anyone listening um, to, to go online. It's really easy to sign up for an appointment. And I look forward to, to seeing you um, at, a, at a coffee shop somewhere in District Well, 7. we're in your district right now in Belltown here, right? We are and see accessible <laughs> constituents. Yeah, although Perfect I think, example. I think all three of us are, uh, are from Seattle originally here. Yes. Uh, and uh, you called your neighborhood Uptown. Are you sure that you didn't want to say <laughs> Lower, Lower Queen, Queen Anne? Anne? Or what, where do you stand on that? Yeah, you know, I've, I, I think I've bitten the bug at this point from the Uptown Alliance and in calling it Uptown. I think we increasingly have a very unique identity in the Uptown neighborhood. I wouldn't necessarily have said that when I was going to high school at the center school, you know, because I've been around the Uptown neighborhood for a long time. Went to went to high school right over here at the in the armory at the um, center house. And, uh, you know, I think the character of the neighborhood's really changed. It didn't uh-huh. feel as dense. It didn't feel as um, there wasn't, weren't as many transportation options. But now, you know, it almost feels a little bit like a mini downtown. You know, okay. it's, it's built up more. And, and um, uh, you know, I think we do have a unique identity separate from Queen Anne. Okay, uptown. So uh, let me get back to, you mentioned, you know, polarization during your city council race. A lot of money coming in. We mentioned Amazon dropping a lot of money. Uh, that sort of found its way into your race. Uh, on the other side, we mentioned Unite here, the hotel workers union that spent a lot of money independently 
for your uh, to to support you, uh, independent from your campaign. And now you're you're at City Hall. You won, and one of the big sort of points of debate right now, uh, talking about Amazon, is a tax on Amazon or a tax on large businesses like Amazon. Where do you stand on that? Do you think that uh, Seattle needs a tax on large businesses to raise money for uh, housing and affordable housing and homeless services? I mean, there's absolutely no question that we need more revenue to confront the homelessness crisis. Uh, you know, I'm serving as the chair of the council's committee on homelessness and neighborhoods. Uh, we've been looking really um, deeply into, you know, what do we really need to do to solve this problem? Like, where is the lack of um, capacity and what can we do as a city to fill it in? I mean, every report um, that we've seen uh, you know, some of them, you know, are different on the exact details. All of them agree that we don't have enough um, money um, to pay for really at the core of this permanent supportive housing. And this is the really important thing to keep in mind, because I, I do think that we need to be public facing and have plan first funding second. I think we have to have a conversation with all of our stakeholders about a plan. And that plan has to be scaling up permanent supportive housing. There, there's no other way around it. Um, you know, you go to Salt Lake City, Utah, Abilene, Texas, Bergen County, New Jersey, Helsinki, Finland, all very different cities with very different, um, you know, kind of resources and approaches, but all of them, permanent supportive housing was the core of their strategy to make significant progress on chronic homelessness. Um, we know that it's going to cost um, about, uh, uh, you know, the, the numbers from the Third Door Coalition from my meetings with them, about a billion dollars in capital costs to build um, an additional 4,500 units of permanent supportive housing. We know that's going to cost probably a $100 million a year to operate. And that's just carving off chronic homelessness on one end of the spectrum. That's not even talking about um, people who are working poor, whose wages and benefits have flatlined, who are falling into um, uh, transitional, you know, car camping homelessness. Um, so, you know, what we really need to do um, is make sure that we are looking at progressive sources of revenue to pay for a plan like that. I want to develop a plan first, then I want to have conversations about revenue, but it's going to have to be progressive and it's going to have to be levied well, um, towards bigger businesses. Well, I get that. And, you know, there was a criticism uh, levied in 2018 when Seattle passed and then almost immediately repealed uh, a per employee head tax on large businesses. There was a criticism that there wasn't enough planning first. So I, and I hear you talking about that. However, things are already moving in terms of progressive revenue sources. I mean, there's a, there's a bill in Olympia that's, that's, you know, being debated right now. Uh, uh, House bill, 2907, I believe it is, um, that would allow authorized King County to uh, tax large businesses in a particular way, sort of targeted at um, highly paid, highly compensated employees with a payroll tax. One of your colleagues on the city council, Shama Sawant, earlier this week announced her proposal, although details yet to come on uh, a, a larger uh, uh, Seattle-only payroll tax on large businesses. So um, you, you want to plan, but but things are moving right now. So what do you think should be done uh, with those proposals? Well, you know, I think 2907 is actually consistent with my approach where we need to plan. Because when I say we need to put together a plan, I mean like in quarter one, quarter two of this year, right? Um, and, you know, as, as you could extrapolate from my previous comments, we already have some thoughts on how, what that plan could look like and how we could shape it and who our partners could be. Um, 2907, I, I completely and unambiguously support that bill. Uh, you know, Nicole Macri, who is the sponsor, is a really good friend of mine. 
Um, State representative, uh, and she also works for a downtown emergency service center, uh, homeless services uh, or housing provider. Yeah. Uh, You know, she um, she is someone who I have an immense amount of respect for. Um, There is no one in local office in the state of Washington that knows more about homelessness, housing and public health than Nicole Macri, as you just said. That for those at home that are viewing, I don't know if you you know this, but Dan has this almanac of uh, bios of all local (laughs) politicians in front of him. It's really it's it's quite stunning. But. Uh, no, but Nicole is um, someone who I think has been managing this conversation very skillfully so far. It's been a hard one to have. We are going to get $125 million regionally assessed if 2907 goes through. The county council will have the authority to pass that. We are going to get remitted as a city about $40 million or so of that. Now, I mean, now this conversation is constantly shifting. Those numbers might even be different now than than they were when I reviewed them earlier this week. But... Um, the important thing to note is I think it's a massive uh, step forward get, since I've been watching policy and, and uh, uh, taxing conversations my whole life in Seattle. The fact that we're debating a countywide progressive tax on big businesses rather than a citywide regressive sales tax to pay for public services is a huge step in the right direction. Um, and even though it's not going to raise nearly enough to completely solve the problem, it's going to raise a significant amount of money that we can build off of and that will make um, a lot of progress towards people that are currently um, experiencing homelessness in King County. But the trick about 2907 and, and the trick about um, a, a regional tax is that um, you have to work with folks who are outside of the city. Um, and we're we're doing that in the course of standing up the Regional Homelessness Authority, which is happening sort of on a parallel track to mm-hmm. this issue of trying to, to raise revenue. Um, how do you see uh, Seattle's relationship with the rest of the county and, and sort of the, the role of the city um, in combating homelessness through these two things, through this agency and also through um, this sort of revenue tool? Yeah, yeah. Uh- well, you know, we often forget that the city of Seattle is actually intimately integrated, um, you know, into King County and the King County system of government. Um, you know, I, I uh, one of the things that <laughs> early in my conversations with Council President Gonzalez, uh, um, one of the things I really made a priority is that, you know, I want to serve on a lot of those regional boards, right? I want to interface with the people that represent the Sound Cities, the members of the King County Council. You know, I'm really proud that I serve on the Puget Sound Regional Council, which is composed not only of leaders from all over King County, but from Snohomish, uh, Pierce, and Kitsap counties as well, who are all experiencing similar problems around growth, around homelessness. Um, you know, I'm really proud um, to be serving on the King County Board of Health, which also is going to hold a lot of the tools on how we respond to um, substance addiction, to behavioral mental health. Um, all of these are bodies that include uh, representatives from from our suburban partners and from King County. I'm going to serve on that Regional Homelessness Authority Governing Board. Uh, and I think a big part of it is going to be how can we as a city coordinate our efforts in the context of all these regional things that are happening. And that's got to be part of our planning process. It, you know, one of the things I said during the campaign is, it, you know, homelessness is a regional problem. We cannot continue to insist that Seattle taxpayers alone and Seattle government alone dedicate resources and um, funding to respond to it. Like we've got to, we've got to work with our regional neighbors to insist on more um, and to develop plans that are cognizant of their needs and what they want to do. Well, so I guess, I'm, but I, I'm still curious, like, what is the city responsible for in that case? You know, what is the, what is that relationship? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to what can we do that other people can't and what can other people do that we can't? 
quite simply, right? So like the city of Seattle, we have a lot of bond and capacity to build more housing. Um, we've got a lot of great sites that are well served by transit that can support um, housing with less, um, uh, you know, perhaps less of a parking requirement, and also with close proximity to services and and um, the leading hospitals in in the county. Um, what can King County do? So King County, um, like I said earlier, you know, has the Department of Public Health. Um, King County. Um, also has a lot more authority and power to do things with um, substance abuse-related um, crimes, right? I mean, they run the superior court. They run the jail. Um, they're the enforcement agency for, um, uh, for drug-related felonies. So I think that we need to look at, you know, what falls in our wheelhouse, what falls in the wheelhouse of our partners, and how can we integrate that response more? Because, you know, we, we have a lot of power to do things in, um, um, in housing, not necessarily in some of these other areas that are necessary to confront the challenge. And bringing it back to uh, House Bill 2907, you know, a big topic right now, you know, it's no secret that in the discussions that led up to the introduction of that bill by Representative Macri, that those discussions included uh, Mayor Durkin, uh, King County Executive Del Constantine, uh, business leaders, and uh, that there was a desire and still is a desire on behalf of some of the business leaders to have a clause written into that bill uh, banning or preempting Seattle from enacting a tax, some kind of a similar tax on big businesses of the city's own. And uh, I know that's a topic of conversation down in Olympia right now. Where do you stand on that? Uh, it, you know, uh, I think the city council, including you, sent a letter saying, we, you know, we don't want that. But, um, you know, there could be a trade-off situation here. Uh, if you get more money for uh, King County to be able to tax big businesses, are you willing to say, do you think it would be okay to say yes to preemption in Seattle or not? Well, I am completely and unambiguously opposed to preemption. Um, you're right. I did sign a letter with all of my colleagues um, unanimously um, on Monday. Um, it's really important to point out that the, you know, the city of Seattle, you know, I mean, we are the leading charter city for the state. We have the biggest police and fire departments in the state. Um, you know, we are responsible for, a, um, you know, a leading um, internationally renowned library system. I mean, you go down the list of all the charter services and things the city does. Uh, you know, cities need to have independent taxing revenue to address unforeseen things that could come up with any service, let alone with, um, with homelessness. Uh, the idea that we would preempt our taxing authority um, is cutting off our nose despite our face. Uh, and we need to make sure we have all the tools to serve the people of Seattle effectively. Um, now, one thing that gives me a lot of hope um, is that the person who's kind of in the room where it happens on this is um, Representative Macri. I have a lot of respect for her judgment and know that she's um, going to do what she thinks is right for the population she has worked to serve for her entire life. Um, so, you know, I respect her judgment. I wouldn't, there's no one else that I would rather have in the room negotiating um, for me to get a good policy um, that's going to move this forward. And, uh, uh, you know, I really hope the legislature does not include preemption in that bill. I, I think that's bad policy. So one thing that's happened early on in your district and in your um, term as, as a council member was last month's shooting at Third and Pine, the shooting that left one person dead and several others injured. Um, after that happened, you were pretty quick out of the gate with the proposal. Uh, you wanted a, a storefront with police and, and social workers. 
why why was that the 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 direction you were going in and is that something that's still on the table is it going to happen yeah so you know one of my big priorities in my term was going to be um, downtown public safety no matter what I mean and that commitment's just been underlined by that terrible tragedy that happened um, at the end of January uh, it, you know some of my earliest meetings were with um, you know the building operators and managers you know the downtown Seattle Association a lot of the stakeholders that have been leading on public safety you know I walk to work on nearly a daily basis I walk through the the Pike Pine corridor. You know, I have a P.O. box um, at Third and Union in the post office there. So, it, you know, it, it's personal for me at a, at a, at a level um, even beyond it being my district. It's something I want to make progress on. Um, you know, we're going to be rolling out a whole lot of um, uh, proposals on um, downtown public safety over the next couple of months. Um, I moved uh, fairly quickly on um, the storefront idea because it was something I'd heard from stakeholders uh, would be um, a valuable addition, um, if not only because there's a lot of vacant storefronts and activating storefronts is an essential public safety strategy. Um, in terms of what goes into that storefront, um, you know, my recommendation early on had been um, the community resource officers, um, which which come online um, this month. We're going to have six more before the end of the year. Um, they're uh, unarmed, um, but they are uniformed. Um, they're specialized in uh, de-escalation and trauma-based interventions. Uh, when we did have them 20 years ago, they were very popular with the community and they were very popular um, with, uh, with law enforcement as well as a resource to help them do their jobs. Um, we know that police presence alone is not going to be enough. Uh, you know, the, we had almost 3,000 additional service hours in the Pike Pine Corridor in 2019. Um, and undoubtedly, that that helped in this in this tragedy to provide quick response. I mean, there were there were officers there within 15 seconds. The life saving measures they applied almost certainly prevented further loss of life. Um, but the police presence alone isn't enough to to stop things like this from happening. So we need to be investing more in upstream um, interventions uh, with mentorship and with young people. It's important to note that when I say upstream. Um, you know, we're not necessarily talking about pre-K education or something that far down the line, though that is helpful. Um, I mean, there's a great group in um, South Seattle called Community Passageways that mentors um, young men that are that are within the peer range of uh, some of these folks who were involved in the shooting, right? Um, to to build um, community, build mentorship, and um, create the kind of connections that. Um, help everyone in our community make better choices and and um, not be in a situation where they'll be on third and pine with a handgun. So um, those are the kinds of things I want to look into, and and we're going to keep working on that throughout my whole term. So so you mentioned that there are proposals coming through the pipeline. You know, is one of those proposals explicitly about mentorship and sort of uh, working with with young people who might be at risk? You know, that is um, that's something that's a priority for my office, and it's something that we're definitely pushing. Uh, you know, when I was a prosecutor in the city attorney's office, I did a lot of work with Choose 180 and Community Passageways, and I've seen firsthand the impact those programs can have um, in making all of us safer and building strong communities. So it's definitely going to be um, a priority, and I'd love to see uh, more programming like that um, offered all over the city, but also in the Pike Pine Corridor. Well, and just to bring it back, you know, you came out with this idea, the storefront. You said you put your name on it, put it out there. So is it going to happen? What progress has there been on that, if any, or, or, or is it maybe not going to happen? 
Um, I'm pretty optimistic that it's going to happen because I've been working with um, a lot of stakeholders to, to drive it forward. One of my favorite things uh, that, that happened in response to putting that out is we actually got tons of unsolicited offers for where to put the storefront, uh, you know, from uh, a lot of property owners downtown offering like marginal rates or, or um, you know, you, even like, you know, like a dollar a year kind of rates because they want to activate the storefront and they think it would be good to have more presence and more services in that corridor. So, uh, you know, that's a resource um, uh, that has kept the conversation going. Um, you know, it, we want to make sure that we kind of get all the details right and, and make sure that we have a conversation about what kind of programming opportunities we would offer through something like that first. Um, but uh, it's something that I'm going to continue to pursue, and, and it's something that a lot of uh, stakeholders are interested in. Whenever there's this kind of conversation, there are going to be some folks who are going to say, we, we just need more police, and some who are going to say, you know, really any proposal that involves more police, uh, you know, may do more harm than good. Uh, and you, you seem like you're trying to sort of thread the needle on that with your proposal. But how do you understand? And I'm sure you've heard from people uh, on both sides of that. Well, I mean, I would just say to people that if that if a response based solely in policing was the answer, Third and Pine would be the safest corner in the city. I mean, like we've had uh, massively increased police presence in Third and Pine um, for uh, for the last couple of years, and it still has a lot of lingering and sustained problems, right? So, you know, policing and, and police staffing is definitely part of this. Um, you know, there is an important deterrence effect that can come from having more police present and, and from having more police around. But you got to pair that kind of an intervention with other um, things to make sustained and, and continuous progress. So it can't. We can't have a response to this based solely in police. We also have to stipulate that, uh, you know, when you have um, um, a corridor that's experiencing a lot of violence, you know, law enforcement is part of the answer. We, you know, services alone cannot um, uh, kind of undermine a, um, a pervasive and and stubborn drug market that's persisted there for my entire life. So. Uh, we need um, a variety of different interventions. It's something I'm going to keep talking to stakeholders about. And we sometimes we just have to stipulate that a complicated problem is only going to yield to a complicated solution. Switching gears here for a second uh, and getting out of City Hall, usual co-host Jim Bruner mentioned to me that he saw you at a, an Elizabeth Warren event recently. I believe that you are supporting her for uh, the Democratic nomination for president, uh, but also had seen you at a Joe Biden fundraiser in Seattle. So uh, where are you on uh, on the big 2020 uh, whole saga? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm just worried that uh, that me being in the room with both of them might have tanked their prospects a little. So that's that's unfortunate. But um, no, I did. Um, I, I had the privilege of being invited to meet um, uh, Vice President Biden um, last November. Um, uh, and it was really a good experience to, to meet him, to be able to ask him some questions um, about uh, municipal government and, and the federal government being a partner. Over the following couple of months, you know, I looked closely at a couple of other presidential candidates. I shopped around a little bit more. Um, I ultimately decided in um, January last month um, that I was going to be supporting um, Senator Warren in the upcoming Washington primary. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, as someone who has spent a lot of time studying American history and looking at, um, uh, you know, presidential um, American history, uh, we're at a time in our country right now where we really do need the kind of transformational change that we had, um, you know, during the 1930s or during um, other periods um, in American history where there was rising inequality, 
um, where we needed bold presidential leadership, where we needed someone who who can kind of bring the the kind of interventions that um, you know President uh, Franklin Roosevelt brought to bear um, to really change the trajectory of the country. You know, Senator Warren is the only person that. I have seen in the field who combines uh, not only the the politics that fit the moment, but also the the proven record and ability to get things done um, with her background on um, standing up the Consumer Protection Bureau, um, her background as one of the leading consumer advocates in the country and, and leading legal minds on consumer protection. You know, when we essentially have a president who is a, a um, uh, professional consumer confidence um, trickster, uh, I think that Senator Warren is in a really good position because she's been busting guys like that for her entire career. Uh, so, you know, I think that Senator Warren um, is the person we need in this moment. Um, I intend to vote for her. Uh, I think she'll be on the ballot no matter what well, in I was, Washington. I was going to ask, yeah, yeah, things haven't been looking too great for her in the first couple states. Do you think she'll push ahead? I mean, I, I really hope that she does because, you know, I, I think one thing that's important to remember is we've had, you know, we've had two states vote. Um, I think we, we tend to give a lot of outsized um, attention to the results in, in those two small states when, you know, in terms of the total delegate count, there's a long way to, to getting the 1,500 plus delegates you need for the nomination. So there's a lot of contests left. Um, you know, I hope she sticks in and, and I hope to be voting for her in, uh, in March. All right, Councilmember Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a wrap for episode 122 of The Overcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to KNKX for having us in the studio again to record. And thanks to our guest this week, Councilmember Andrew Lewis. If you appreciate the independent journalism that we bring you with this podcast almost every week, please go to seattletimes.com support for subscription options. We love to hear your feedback. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at SV Alicea. Dan is at D. Beekman. Our usual co-host Jim Bruner is at Jim underscore Bruner. You can also send an email to seattletimesovercast at gmail.com. And until next week, have a cloudy day.